Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 13. They think it's all over. It is now. It's fall. Perhaps the most famous piece of football commentary in English history. Spoken on the 30th of July 1966 by BBC commentator Kenneth Wollstenholm. As Jeff Hurst scores the fourth goal for England against Germany in the 120th minute of the World Cup final. Although, as a Manchester City fan, I think Aguero is up there too. But this episode, you'll be surprised to find out, is not about famous football commentaries, but about the Romans in the years after the First Punic War. Peace had finally come to the Mediterranean. The First Punic War was the longest uninterrupted conflict in the classical world. A solid 23 years of war. The two nations on either side of this conflict were both exhausted and needed time to recover. But it must have been known by those in the halls of power that this was only a temporary peace. To demonstrate this, to demonstrate this, we look at a historical parallel. After the Second World War, there was much disagreement between the victorious allies about what to do with Germany. The French and the Soviets both sought to keep Germany weak. Historically, this is understandable. Given that in the last hundred years or so, France had been invaded by Germany, slash Prussia, five times, and since the days of the Tsar Alexander I of Russia and the Vienna Peace Treaty, Russia had sought to control weak states in order to keep the motherland safe. They were both terrorised by the thoughts of another German invasion, and so were determined to make sure Germany would never rise again. France assumed this would be the case, as she prepared for her economic recovery. The Monet Plan assumed French access to German coal in order to reinvigorate the French steel industry. There was indeed an agreement to keep the German standard of life below the European average. The Germans were taught why they were wrong in World War II. This policy was a disaster. Europe's economy was stagnating. There was political unrest. There was a wide belief in France that there would be civil war. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Germans resented their occupiers. They felt themselves victims of World War II as much as anybody else, and loathed being exploited. Former US President Herbert Hoover wisely told current President Harry Truman in 1946 that, quote, You can have vengeance, or you can have peace, but you cannot have both. This was quickly realised. Germany was given a degree of self-governance. It was allowed to rebuild its economy, to have access to martial aid. The involvement of West Germany in the Western European economy proved to be that very economy's saviour 
and Western Europe was rebuilt and recovered, with Germany a crucial member. Not an underling, but an equal. Peace reigned. Compare this to the disaster of Versailles. The Allies extracted their vengeance on Germany, leading to the Second World War. As we saw last week, the Roman people made terms harsher for Carthage than the original treaty. Rome wanted her revenge. Rome could have this, or peace. And so in a mere twenty years, the two nations were once again at war. But they are not at war now. And I promise you, this time, we will stay on topic. There were three points of significance for what the Romans were up to in these interwar years. The invasion of Sardinia. Rome's relationship with the Greek cities and Macedonia in the east. And Rome's relationship with the Gauls in the north. The Roman invasion of Sardinia is not that complicated. But it is quite confusing and very important. As Carthage was preoccupied with her own post-war events, which we'll get into next week, she managed to lose control of Sardinia. This was followed, quite bizarrely, in 238 BC, by a Roman invasion of the island. The Romans claimed that they were well within their rights to do so, As you'll remember from last week, they inserted a clause into the peace treaty that the Carthaginians were to surrender all the islands between Sicily and Italy. The Romans claimed this included Sardinia, which at the time it most certainly did not. But what were the Carthaginians going to do? They were otherwise engaged and couldn't afford another war with Rome, so soon after their last unsuccessful one. Carthage gave in, but she was not happy about it. The Carthaginians were understandably furious with the backstabbing Romans. I've just spoken at length about how, after a war, you can either have vengeance or peace. This single act did more than any other to provoke Carthaginian anger and resentment. This act is probably the single greatest reason why the Second Punic War happened. Or at least why the Second Punic War became a real war between two nations, and not just a conflict between Rome and a rogue general. The Barkids had their own motivations. As well as expanding her territory to the west, Rome began to expand in the east. Illyricum was, in the Roman world, the piece of land to the east of the Adriatic, the place inhabited by the former Yugoslavian countries in the modern world. The Illyrian tribes had lived there since the 8th century BC, but Rome was concerned with one particular tribe, which had taken advantage of weakness in Macedon and Epirus, to expand in the south of the region. I don't think I stand a chance of pronouncing this correctly. The Ardii. They had been expanding, 
and upon the death of King Agron in 231 BC, Queen Teuta took over control as regent for the King Parnes and continued this policy. In 230, Teuta continued the siege of Issa, a Greek colony on the Adriatic island of Viz. The Roman brothers Gaius and Lucius Cor Uncanius were sent as envoys, but one of the brothers was killed by Illyrian pirates. Piracy was a problem for the Romans, and tolerance of it was one of their issues with the Illyrian kingdoms. Rome took advantage of the situation, and declared war on the Ardii in 229. The war did not last long, ending in 228. Teuta was betrayed by Demetrius of Pharos. Demetrius surrendered Corsaira to Rome, and in return was made a dynast of parts of Illyria. Polybius does not have a high opinion of Demetrius. He describes him as foolhardy and lacking judgment. He was indeed to side with Philip in the Second Punic War, slash First Macedonian War, and was killed in 214. So, why is this event important? Because it is Rome's first venture into the East. The Adriatic is the divider of the Mediterranean and Europe into East and West. So, Rome's first movement across it is significant. It also began Rome's relationship with the Greek cities, as Rome reassured that she was not a threat to them. Rome soon gained the Aetolian League as allies, which would prove very helpful down the road. We now turn our attention to Rome's northern frontier. It must be remembered that while Rome was firmly in control of Italia, Italia had very different borders to the modern Italy. At this point in history, Rome did not control anything north of the River Po. But in these years, Rome sought to change that fact. They had previously defeated the Gauls a number of times, but as a new generation takes the place of the old, it is often doomed to repeat its mistakes. And so, after many years of peace, the Gauls were once again a threat. In 242, the Romans moved a legion to the north of Italy to guard against this threat, and in 237, the Romans began to colonise the region of Bicenium. The man who proposed this measure was none other than Tribune of the Plebs, Gaius Flaminius. We will have much more to say about Gaius Flaminius. Polybius does not have a high opinion of Flaminius for political reasons. Polybius and his friends in the senatorial aristocracy did not like this reforming, democratising tribune. Flaminius was given much support, and would indeed use this support to gain military commands. Unfortunately, as you shall soon see, Gaius Flaminius was a horrible general. But 
back to the period between the wars. So, the Minutes encouraged the colonisation of Picenium, a polite way of saying the Romans seized Gallic land. This led to great unrest among the Gauls. Many Gauls, especially the tribes of the Boii, believed the Romans did not intend to conquer them, but to seize their territory, force them out of their homeland, and exterminate them. They thus prepared for war. The Inciberes and the Boii were the two largest tribes, and they united and persuaded the tribes living among the Alps and near the Rhone, known as the Gaisitaii, to join them. They gathered their forces and prepared to invade, while the Romans prepared for the invasion. The full Roman focus was on the north, never mind anything that might be going on in Spain. Finally, in 225 BC, the storm broke. An army of 50,000 infantry and 20,000 cavalry descended on Etruria. The consul Lucius Aemilius Paulus was sent north to Ariminum, the modern Rimini, to deal with the threat. A praetor was sent to Etruria, while the other consul, Gaius Attilius Regulus, son of the Regulus who led the disastrous Roman invasion of Africa, was sent to Sardinia, possibly just in case of a Carthaginian invasion. I cannot understate the panic the Romans had. The fear of the Gauls was ingrained into the Roman psyche until Julius Caesar's campaigns in the 1st century BC. Rome may have been afraid, but she would fight. So would Italy. Over the country, 700,000 infantry and 70,000 cavalry were raised. Italy was clearly well defended. The Gauls advanced into Etruria, ravaging the country, and they met no opposition. They continued marching south. When they reached Clusium, only three days' march from Rome, they received word that the Roman army from Etruria was heading towards them, and so they turned back to meet it. The Gauls set an ambush for the Romans, which the Romans fell into. The Romans were defeated. They lost 6,000 men and retreated to an easily defensible hill. Luckily for those Romans, help was at hand. Paulus arrived with the other Roman army, stationed by the Adriatic, and quickly realised what had happened. Paulus was determined to fight. Due to the situation. But the Gauls wanted to save their booty. So they wanted to retreat. The Gauls accordingly headed north, while Paulus collected his forces and shadowed the Gauls. Though north of the Gauls, Regulus had arrived from Sardinia with his forces at Pisa. 
Regulus managed to capture some Gallic foragers, and was soon informed of what was going on. He believed that with the Gauls trapped between the two Roman forces, victory was possible. Regulus began movements with his cavalry, determined to occupy some high land. Unaware of Regulus's arrival, the Gauls assumed that the cavalry of Paulus had outflanked them. They soon realised what was happening, though, and deployed their forces to face both ways. Paulus followed behind. Aware Regulus was near, but once he saw the fighting up ahead, he realised just how close Regulus was. The two Roman armies attacked the Gauls. It was a long, hard battle, but Roman armour gave them a distinctive advantage. Regulus lost his life, but the Romans continued to fight. Finally, the Roman cavalry routed the Gallic cavalry and slammed into the Gallic infantry. 40,000 Gauls were killed, and 10,000 taken prisoner. Italy was safe. The next year, the Romans set about the aim of forcing the Gauls out of the Po Valley. They would fight for several years, until they gained control of Mediolanum, the modern Milan. And then the Gauls finally gave up. The Gauls were not expelled, and it was an uneasy peace that reigned. Just waiting for a brilliant Carthaginian general to lead the Gauls to glory. That is where we shall leave things this week. We've got a good idea of what the Romans were doing. There are more things that happened, particularly in these later years, but we'll deal with those later. If you liked today's episode, go visit us online. There is the website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. The Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. The Twitter page, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. The YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast. The email address, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. And the History Podcasts Facebook group. Some of you may be aware that we here at the History of Podcast have had various technical difficulties on the show with iTunes and the shows have had to be resubmitted. So, I'd like to give a huge thanks to all of you who have resubscribed and left new reviews. Particular thanks go to Michael slash Kelly Ladvig, MPS1, Marvin Hoffland, M. Ryan 1, Biff 2481, Bashwell, Paper Saints.soapco, Barry Wakefield, and Dynamo Hull for their written reviews. I really appreciate all of you doing that. Especially the ones who gave five star reviews. Wink, wink. On the website, you can find Amazon links. It doesn't cost you anything extra to buy something through the link, and I'll get a small cut. This week, I'd like to recommend the simply superb Post-War, a history of Europe since 1945, by Tony 
Jut. I'll quote the blurb. Europe, in 1945, was prostate. Much of the continent was devastated by war, mass slaughter, bombing, and chaos. Large areas of Eastern Europe were falling under Soviet control, exchanging one despotism for another. Today, the Soviet Union is no more, and the democracies of the European Union reach as far as the borders of Russia itself. Post-war tells the rich and complex story of how we got from there to here, running right up to the Iraq War and the election of Benedict XVI. Post-war makes sense of Europe's recent history and identity, of what Europe is and has been. It is nothing less than a masterpiece. I am currently working my way through it at the moment, and it is one of the best history books I've ever read. It's phenomenal. So, go check that out. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next week, when we see what's going on in Carthage, before getting into the Barkid narrative.